Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Coming up on today's episode of The Audible, attorney Tom Mars joins me to talk about a potentially revolutionary proposal by the NCAA this week that would allow players to transfer without having to sit out a year. And the athletic Chris Vanini joins me as well to talk about his very unique story about a program that is attempting to move from D3 straight to D1. That's coming up on The Audible. Welcome to The Audible with Stu and Bruce, presented by Trader Joe's. I actually just went to Trader Joe's on Valentine's Day to pick up flowers for my wife. I'd recommend you do the same whenever there's a special occasion. Go get your groceries from Trader Joe's and buy some of their beautiful flowers. Bruce is not with us this week. I would say he's on vacation, but the man hasn't actually taken a true vacation since like 2008. I'm sure he's in line at Disney World right now trying to break the Colorado coaching search. Um, but there was big news in the college sports world this week. I'm, in fact, I'm not even sure it's getting as much attention as it probably should be, given the magnitude. Uh, that's the transfer rule, the transfer proposal. That's uh, First, the Big Ten proposed it. The ACC came out this week, said they endorse it. And now uh, the actual NCAA uh, transfer working group, transfer waiver working group, Basically, they want to get rid of these these waivers that have been causing so much um, consternation the last couple years and just give every football and basketball player a one-time exception, as long as they're in good academic standing, transfer, play right away. Obviously, that would be a game changer. There's no person on the face of the earth more qualified to talk about this than Thomas Mars. Uh, Thomas Mars, you probably recognize the name as an attorney who began representing some of the players in these waiver situations like uh, Shea Patterson at Michigan a couple years ago, Justin Fields, many others, and uh, has seen this waiver process up close from, from every possible angle. So I wanted to bring him on and talk about this proposal, which suddenly is gaining a lot of momentum. So pleased to be joined now by Thomas Mars. You know him as an attorney who has been uh, connected to a lot of the players who have tried to get uh, transfer waivers over the last couple of years. But as Tom would tell you, that is not that is not his whole business. Um, I guess we should start with that, right, as a little bit of background. How did you get uh, involved in the NCAA transfer waiver business? Hi, Stu. I actually got involved by accident. I mean, I see it. I'm just representing former Ole Miss coach Houston Nutt in a lawsuit against the University of Mississippi back in 2017. And after the lawsuit was settled, I received a call from a student athlete's father, uh, Mike Anderson, Houston, who asked me if I could 
help his son, Deontay Anderson, get a transfer waiver, which, to be honest with you, uh, I didn't even know what he was talking about. Because <laughs> at the time, I didn't really know much about college football. I didn't even know what an LI was. But I knew I had information that I developed in that Houston lawsuit that could help his kids. So I said, sure, I'll help you. And then five other parents of Ole Miss players called me in the course of about three weeks. And I told all of them that I'd be glad to help them, too. And that's how I got involved. And I think as most people who follow college football know, Shea Patterson was the highest profile of those six. And and the uh, case brought a lot of uh, attention <clears throat> from people in you know the collegiate sports community. And when Shea was granted a waiver and the other five players were granted waivers, I started receiving as many as uh, eight calls a day uh, in 2018. And uh, I don't get eight calls every day, but I get an average still of one or two emails or calls every day uh, from head coaches, athletic directors, or compliance staff, and, and more often parents of student athletes who are just looking for some help. And that's how I got involved. And I think it was really Shea Patterson in that situation where before that, I think people felt like those waivers were pretty rare and pretty hard to get. And then there was a change in some of the wording and all of a sudden it was like, open the floodgates. Everybody wanted to get one of these. But there's been a lot of frustration because to the average fan, it seems like some guys are getting them and some aren't and you can't necessarily tell why. Um, often you don't know the reasons why somebody was granted one of these. Uh, what, in your experience working with the NCA, working with the schools, uh, how do you make sense of, of you know what transpired over the last couple of years? Well, the way I see it, the, uh, the floodgates really opened in April of 2018 when the Legislative Council passed this, what most people call the mitigating circumstances exception. I was just interested in getting these six guys a, a waiver, so I wasn't too concerned about what wording they used in this new legislation. But to be honest with you, at the time I saw that language, I thought, gosh, I could drive a truck through this loophole. I didn't expect to be helping other student athletes at the time. But I could see around the corner, and if everybody would recall the announcement about the transfer portal followed a couple months later. And when I saw that, I, I foresaw there'd just be a tsunami of transfer waiver requests. And in fact, that's what happened. And we should, we should make that distinction, right? I think a lot of people conflate the transfer portal and the waiver process as all being one thing. The, the, the concept of a transfer portal and kids not having to get permission to transfer to certain schools had been in the works for a while. Uh, I don't remember exactly when that passed, but it went into effect, what, fall of 2018, I believe. But kind of parallel to that was this change in the wording about uh, being able to get a waiver. And those two events, I think, just kind of um, you know, to combined together, created this tsunami, as you said. Um, our our uh, our fans justified to feel like it's kind of arbitrary, like why one guy gets it and another guy doesn't. I think so. I do think that a lot of the perceived inconsistencies are based on the varying quality of <clears throat> the advocacy that the compliance staff at different schools put into these transfer waivers. I'm sometimes brought in to uh, handle appeals, and I get to see the work that's done by compliance staff. And I can tell you, Stu, that it is all over the board. I mean, it ranges from excellent to 
what would be considered malpractice in my business. And I think as a consequence of that, the decisions that appear to be blatantly inconsistent are sometimes not. But the staff in Indianapolis can only deal with the cards that they're given. And if the school doesn't do a good job of presenting the waiver request, I don't blame the NCAA staff for turning them down. That's the way I see it. And you also, I believe, went to Indianapolis. Well, first of all, let's just explain real quick. At one point, it was in the headlines that you were you had switched sides, that you were now working for the NCAA um, with their enforcement side, and that you were retired from the waiver business. But then it seemed like you know you're back in it. You've been connected to some other players. Can you just describe real quick what your um, relation working relationship is with the NCAA? Sure. And the first thing I'd like to say is I. I wince whenever I see a headline that says uh, that I've been hired to battle the NCAA. Nothing to be further from the truth. You don't battle a judge when you go into court. You present your case the best you can to the judge, and the judge makes a decision. I've, I've never battled the NCAA. I've never criticized the NCAA staff. I think they do a great job, given the, the ridiculously uh, arcane and, and Byzantine indefensible rules they have to interpret, <clears throat> but I never perceived myself as battling the NCAA. But in any event, in February of uh, 2019, I was contacted by the head of NCAA enforcement, and I was asked if I'd be interested in being considered as an independent enforcement advocate for their new complex case unit. To make a long story short, I went through a vetting process, and in August, I was selected along with two or three other lawyers to be on standby without compensation uh, to oversee any cases that may be referred to this new complex case unit. Uh, that appointment uh, started in August. No cases have been referred to the complex case unit, so I'm actually just on standby. I've agreed to be available. Uh, the only restriction on my law practice is that I've agreed not to represent anybody in connection with enforcement matters. I never have done that kind of work anyway. Uh, but there's nothing about that agreement or that relationship that uh, restricts my ability to represent student-athletes in eligibility cases. So what has your experience been working with the, the side of the NCAA that handles these waiver requests? Because I think uh, it's hard for people to understand sometimes. I mean, the, there's when we talk about the NCAA and people demonize the NCAA, I mean, oftentimes they're talking about rules that were passed by university presidents across the country, not Mark Emmert himself. But then there are, you know, kind of functional day-to-day uh, responsibilities that are handled by a staff in Indianapolis. And it's my understanding that's the case with these um, requests for legislative relief. Um, tell, tell us about your interactions with them. Well, one misconception is that, that I have interactions with the NCAA staff. In fact, I don't. In fact, I've never talked to or emailed or texted with any member of the NCAA eligibility staff because I don't represent the member institutions. And one of their strict rules, which I, I think makes a lot of sense, is that they don't communicate with anybody except a representative of the member institution. And since I represent the student athlete, I'm actually an adjunct member of a team that is actually led by the compliance staff at the university. They communicate with the NCAA staff. What I do is I have a background in law enforcement and uh, 
most of the work I've done in my 30 plus years as a lawyer has involved complex investigations. So where I add values to is I, I bring an, op, uh, an ability to uh, find information that isn't easily found and to uh, prepare statements that you might describe as written advocacy on behalf of the student athletes. I, I do that work hand in hand with the compliance staff and they submit that paperwork to Indianapolis. But with that background of mine, I got to tell you, college football fans who are throwing rocks at the staff in Indianapolis are throwing the rocks in the wrong direction. The people up there don't have any ability to change these rules. They are given this impossible task. It was impossible three years ago. It's, it's ridiculously impossible now because their workloads increased two, three, four fold in the last 24 months. But those people go to work every day, in my opinion, trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of student athletes. And they do the best they can within a framework that's absolutely broken. The only people on this planet have the ability to fix it are the people who are representatives of universities who sit on the legislative council. And those people could fix this problem in a heartbeat, and I believe they will in April. So just to expand on that, what do you mean when you say it's fundamentally broken? Well, first of all, the Division I manual that sets forth all the bylaws is 440 pages. And it has a table of contents that might as well be labeled, don't start here because you're not going to find what you're looking for. Uh, I don't know if anybody has uh, taken a look at the Internal Revenue Code, but I have. And I got to tell you, this Division I manual is more Byzantine and confusing and more difficult to understand than anything. It's in the Internal Revenue Code. And over time, what they've done uh, over the last several years, what the Legislative Council's done in response to uh, concerns and criticisms about the process is just added two or three words to one section and added a couple uh, more words here and there, subtracted a few words, and then in April of 2018, created another exception for mitigating circumstances. And I don't think they foresaw what they were doing, and it's almost like they created this Frankenstein monster that is just stitched together over time with little changes, and, and it's become so incomprehensible that it's impossible for the people in Indianapolis to administer. And on top of that, when they created that new waiver exception with that huge loophole, I know for a fact that compliance staff at schools all across the country were being pressured by head coaches and ADs to submit waiver requests that probably didn't have any merit at all. And as a result of that, everybody adopted this don't ask, don't get mentality. And instead of just submitting waiver requests that had merits, the compliance staff at these schools started submitting waiver requests for everybody. And then as a consequence, people in Indianapolis, I know for a fact that in one category of waivers, the family hardship waiver, I know there was one staff member up there whose workload increased fivefold compared to 2017. And so what, what, what occurred in 2018 is simply chaos. And, and I think the chaos is the driving force behind the recommendation that came out of the transfer waiver working group this week. And, and there's only one solution. 
that recommendation needs to be passed, and I'm absolutely convinced it'll be passed in April. Do you think one of the tipping points was, you mentioned in passing there, the hardship waiver? I mean, in addition to how, you know, the, 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 the kind of nebulous loophole for one kind of, there's, there's actually, and I don't think people even know this, two different kinds of waiver requests. And last summer, we saw guys like Brock Hoffman at Virginia Tech, uh, Luke Ford, who transferred from Georgia to Illinois, who were trying to get those waivers to, to be closer to family members who were ill. And then the, those get denied because, for whatever reasons, um, they didn't fit the letter of the law. And then at the same time that other players are, are getting theirs granted because of the, you know, the um, mitigating circumstances waiver that's, com- that's theoretically completely different. Those are completely different. And uh, since you mentioned Brock and Luke, I, I was in the background of both of those cases. And an example of uh, a part of these rules that makes no sense whatsoever is a provision in the family hardship section that requires the student athlete to transfer to a school that's within a hundred mile radius of their, of their family's home. Well, I did some research and I can tell you that there's no logic or basis for that. I think the intent was uh, for the rule to be applied so they'd receive a waiver if they were close enough to provide some support for their family. But in cases where a student athlete transfers to a school that's 103 miles outside uh, from their family home, uh, a student athlete doesn't get a waiver. Whereas another student athlete is 97 miles from their family's home does. That makes no sense whatsoever. But the staff didn't create that rule. I'm pretty sure that some of the people on the staff would have preferred to not have that rule or to change it or have the discretion to apply it differently, but they don't. Uh, I, I got to say, I, I see this whole debate about transfer waivers, too, as a civil rights movement. The civil rights movement for the fair and equal treatment of student-athletes. And like most civil rights movements in this country, there's a tipping point at which the people pursuing equal treatment are clearly going to prevail. And I think we've reached that tipping point this week. And NIL is a part of that whole civil rights movement. And I think these, uh, with all due respect, these millionaire coaches who are still opposed to one-time transfer without penalty don't stand a chance of preserving the status quo. And why? Because their position has no basis in fact or logic, and it reeks of hypocrisy. And I know there's been a lot of talk about the Mel Tucker uh, move to Michigan State. That's probably the most recent and maybe the greatest example of the hypocrisy of college head coaches who are whining about, uh, you know, the apocalypse, uh, you know, being near, this would be the end of college football, free agency. Uh, those, those arguments are ridiculous. Uh, I mean, just consider the, consider the rationale that's been offered for this year in residence requirement for years, the requirement that a kid set out a year. And that, that rationale has been that they need an opportunity to acclimate at their new school because they'll perform academically at a higher level. There's no empirical data to support that. The transfer waiving, waiver working group said as much this week. And, and can consider this. If 
if we really had that rule so that these players could acclimate at their new school, freshman students wouldn't be allowed to play football because they'd need to acclimate in the first year. And what's more, when a transferring player has to sit out a year, they still practice. They still go to workouts and they do everything their teammates do. Everything, except they don't get to participate in games. So they're not really being given a chance to acclimate. They're just being punished. This, this rule is and always has been about roster management. And I'm, I'm not an expert on roster management, but if I was getting paid $5 million a year, I wouldn't be going into my boss and saying, I, I don't like this. Uh, in the rest of the world, if, if an executive at a fortune company went in and complained to the CEO about something that made their job more difficult and they were getting paid $5 million a year, I'm pretty sure the CEO would say, go figure it out. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, there, there was a – so this press release this week about the – um, proposal from the NCA committee. Uh, our Nicole Auerbach has been writing about this a lot. And in her article about it, she she notes that there's just kind of what seems like a throwaway line in the press release that frankly debunks the entire stated reasoning that this this rule has been in effect for all these decades. Quote: There is no academic data to support that serving an academic year in residence following transfer is academically beneficial to all student athletes, regardless of sport. I mean, they've been calling it an academic year in residence for so long. You actually texted me about this before the interview. You did some research. How far back does the academic year in residence requirement date? Believe it or not, the year in residence requirement has applied in college football for 127 years. It originated in 1893 with the NCAA's predecessor organization. And, and even, even back then, the rationale was that this was necessary to uh, further the interests of student-athletes. But even 127 years ago, it was about roster management. That's amazing. And, and 1893 predates not just the NCAA, um, probably most of the schools that play college football, um, I know the Big Ten was founded in 1896. So, I mean, that, that's nuts. Uh, so given that, given that this has just been kind of accepted, I mean, I've been covering college sports for 20 years, and, and up until the past year or two, there was never any talk that this would ever change. Uh, that's just it was a given. You transfer, you sit out a year. Uh, the grad transfer rule obviously changed that a little bit in, in allowing those guys, you know, those guys who have gotten their degree to play right away. But I never sensed that there was any momentum for, for, for applying it to undergrads until very recently. Um, what was your reaction when you saw that, that, that initial report, I believe in January, that the Big Ten had, ADs had quietly uh, put together a proposal and that were in support of this? Well, I stay, <clears throat> I stay close to this issue every day of the week, and I have for about two or three years. And I've, I've become very passionate about this, and I see my role in this debate more as an advocate, uh, a voice for student-athletes, for the fair and equal treatment of student-athletes. <clears throat> uh, and, and I was really encouraged when I saw that come out of the uh, conference. And uh, by the same token, you know, I've paid attention to what some conference commissioners have said and what some prominent head coaches have said, and every time I, I, I hear this uh, 
uh, nonsense about uh, needing to acclimate and this is going to ruin college football. I just shake my head. But I've been saying since last fall publicly that I was convinced that this rule, this arcane rule we've been talking about now for a few minutes, would be abolished in early 2020 and be replaced by a one-time transfer without penalty. And I've, I've seen this uh, progression where people uh, like Gene Smith at Ohio State, who went through the process, saw the process firsthand with Justin Fields, came out of that with a very different opinion. I saw Scott Leffler at, at Bowling Green go through this arduous, time-consuming, uh, emotionally stressful four months with a quarterback named Matt McDonald and Scott came out of this process with a new opinion uh, and a a different uh, view about the situation and why this needs to change. And I've I've seen people who've actually witnessed this firsthand who started out thinking that uh, a one-time transfer wouldn't be good for college sports. Now being advocates for this much needed change, uh, and I, I sort of facetiously said to a sports writer a week or two ago that uh, nothing would make me happier than have the legislative council run me out of business. This isn't the largest part of my sports practice. I represent head coaches and contract disputes. Uh, I, I do other things. Uh, but I would be thrilled if this came to an end and, and a student athlete never had to hire a lawyer uh, to just have the same treatment that any other transferring student has. I mean, if the violinist uh, with a scholarship transfers, nobody has ever suggested that they ought to be barred from playing in concerts for a year. Um, why treat student athletes differently? And, you know, my favorite example is Justin Fields. I got to know Justin on a personal level. I get to know most of these kids on a personal level and I get to know their parents and their siblings on a personal level. And Justin is a great young man with a great future ahead of him. He comes from a great family. He didn't do anything wrong. And I'll bet there's not a person on the planet who can now say with a straight face that college football would have been better off this year if Justin Fields, instead of being a Heisman finalist, was sitting on the bench. And I can't think of a better example of a young man who deserved to play when he transferred, played his heart out, became a Heisman finalist. Uh, what's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but you realize, right, how controversial that was because um, to this day, I mean, you, you've been pretty, um, you've remained coy, certainly he has, about why he got that granted. Everybody knows about the incident with the baseball player at Georgia. Um, but I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that 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 waiver decision directly impacted the college football playoff race last year. I don't think Ohio State's in the playoff if Justin Fields isn't eligible. Um, do you feel like? I mean, are you? Do you sense that that maybe? I don't know if people were ticked off about it, but maybe just uh, uh, the the impact that that could have. That this seemingly you know that somebody in Indianapolis decided that his waiver request was legit and somebody else's wasn't had a pretty profound impact on the entire college football season. Well, my opinion, my opinion, frankly, is I don't really care whether it had an impact on the college football season. I'm more interested in a student athlete being treated fairly and 
and not being punished. And I can tell you, Justin's waiver request was, was as meritorious as any I've ever worked on. And I've been coy about the reasons, the actual reasons behind his waiver request, not because I don't want to share that with the public. I've been coy because I don't think it's anybody's business. I don't think just because he's a high profile student athlete that everybody who's got a Twitter account and press credentials should be entitled to know every little detail of his college experience. It's none of their business. That's the reason I've been coy about it. But I can tell you that that decision that was made in Indianapolis to grant Justin Fields a waiver was based on a strict, fair interpretation of the rules and the facts. And and his his waiver request, like I said, had as much merit as any I've ever worked on. And it, it drives me crazy when I see people on Twitter suggesting that, you know, he was he was granted a waiver just because he uh, you know, was a high profile quarterback or because of the school that he came from or the school he went to. Uh, people who are making those comments uh, have no idea what they're talking about, and they're wrong. Well, turning back to the proposal, um, so first the Big Ten came out in support, then the ACC. Now it's gone truly national with the NCAA uh, commit transfer waiver committee in, in putting together. I mean, they, they it's a little bit different in that they – are treating it as it still would be a waiver request theoretically, although as long as you're in good academic standing, you would be granted it. I don't know if that's how it would end up being or not, but is it, do you think it's inevitable at this point that it's going to be passed? Because I feel like while it seems to be heading that way, there's, as you know, there's so many layers in, in NCAA uh, legislative process that this has to go through. And, and I think for one thing, we know that with the exception of Jim Harbaugh, who, who, at Big Ten Media Days last year, said he would support something like this. Uh, I mean, shoot, I was I was in um, Phoenix last spring for the conference meetings, and that you know, Pat Fitzgerald, president of the AFCA, other coaches were walking around telling all of us how frustrated they were with the waiver situation, and that their solution was that okay, we're going to go back to everybody sits out a year, but if you graduate, you get that year back at the end. And I just remember thinking, I don't think these guys realize that that ship has sailed. <laughs> I, that's not going to be where this ends up. It's more likely to be with more freedom, not less. But we know that they're going to voice their opposition. I think maybe some of the smaller conferences worried about their that the big conferences just come poach all their best players might oppose this. I mean, what if you're forecasting it, where does this end up? Well, first of all, I, I, I talk to Jim Harbaugh every now and then about this topic and, and uh I'm glad to see his leadership on this issue, but he's not the only head coach who's at least privately expressing to me their support for this one-time transfer without penalty. They may not be saying that to other head coaches, but but I can tell you I name a half a dozen head coaches if I wanted to off the top of my head who told me privately that this needs to happen, and it needs to happen this year. And if you think about it, Stu, there's really only three options here. Uh set the clock back 127 years and continue uh, a practice of punishing student athletes based on a bogus rationale and, and taking a position that is completely contrary to the NCAA's commitment to always do what's best for student athletes and to protect their interests. That's option one. Option two 
is to have another year of this nonstop circus where the staff is probably going to be no telling how, how many waiver requests they're going to get this next year if this doesn't change. Um, but the, if the coaches want to go through that for another year, uh, I'd like I'd like to hear what they have to say about that because everybody's telling me behind the scenes that they can't fathom having to go through another year of this nonstop chaos where there's no transparency, there's no visibility into why these decisions are being made, and on the surface they appear to be inconsistent, and and that just leads to all kinds of criticism and 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 chaos which, as I said earlier, I think is the reason behind this recommendation. Nobody wants chaos. And the third option is to take a more progressive, equal rights uh, approach uh, and let the coaches do what they're getting paid for, manage their rosters under slightly different conditions. It's not going to be the end of the world. It is inevitable this is going to happen. And notably, the recommendation that came out of the transfer waiver working group includes a provision that says the student athlete will have to have a release from their school. So the head coaches are going to be hard pressed to start screaming about free agency and, you know, the apocalypse of college football, because under this recommendation, they have the right to, to block a player from playing. They, they can say, no, I'm not going to release you. And I think what's going to happen is all head coaches in college football are going to self-select into one of two categories by making those decisions. And I'm not one to put labels on people, but they're going to self-select either into the category that they don't really care about the interests of student athletes. They're more interested in getting their next head coach job and making a couple more million dollars, or they're going to self-select into a category of more progressive, enlightened, head coaches who actually care about these kids. And I think as time goes on over the next few months, there aren't going to be many head coaches who want to be in that first category. And if they put themselves there, I think they're going to get slammed on social media and by the sports media. If they put themselves in that category, they should be slammed. I was a little surprised, frankly, to see that that was part of it because the whole point of the transfer portal was that coaches would no longer have the ability to block kids from transferring to certain schools. And now they're talking about, okay, everybody can can play right away, but you still have to get your release. Like the whole point of the transfer portal was to end the concept of having to get your release. And now they're talking about reintroducing that. But as we know, uh, there's no way the final version of this will be exactly the way it started. Uh, I'm sure there'll be many changes along the way, but um, I think one thing is clear that this day is coming sooner than whether it'll be for the start of this next school year or the one after it. Uh, this is where we're headed. And obviously it's going to be, I mean, the fact that we're talking about, you know, you said 1893. So we're talking about legislation that would potentially end something that's been, uh, that's been the rule for 127 years. I mean, this is, I think, a pretty significant moment for college sports. It is. It's a historical moment for college sports, and it's long overdue. Well, Thomas, we can't thank you enough for coming on the Audible today. Sorry uh, you didn't get to, to, to interact with Bruce. It was a rare, rare, rare occasion where he misses an episode, but I know he would have liked to be here. But uh, I, was, I was looking forward to having a chance to talk with Bruce and uh, tell him I'm sorry he couldn't join us. I will. Um, and... Uh, 
we will uh, we will talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks for the opportunity, Steve. Okay. Thanks to Thomas Mars for coming on the podcast today. Uh, you know, he mentioned in there, and I wanted to follow up um, the fact that a lot of people who had long opposed this have changed their minds in the last year or so. You can put me in that camp, and I wrote a column about it last summer. It's not that I opposed players playing right away, like morally or like how dare they or anything like that. I I, mean, I just always assumed, well, you can't do full-on unrestricted transfers. It would be too, too chaotic. It would be full-on free agency. Rosters would turn over. There would be just no way to manage that is kind of how I looked at it for, for many, many years. Like nice in theory, but not practical. But the transfer waiver process has been so frustrating and maddening and inconsistent that I just threw up my hands and said, just let them play. I mean, that that's a better outcome to me than, than how this is playing out right now. And as it now becomes closer to reality, I mean, we'll see. You can never predict ahead of time how something's going to play out. But like I wrote in the mailbag this week, as long as there's still scholarship limits, uh, in particular per class, I think that that's going to curtail a little bit any fears people have about, okay, there's a coaching change and the entire recruiting class is going to transfer. Um, There's still, as of this moment, maybe it changes, 25 scholarships per class. Transfers count against that. So coaches are still going to have to be pretty pretty selective about who they want to take as transfers and who they want to spend those scholarships on. Now, if they... um, if there's some sort of accompanying legislation that loosens that entirely, then yeah, we could see a more chaotic outcome. Um, but right now, I think that the main thing I think is that if this goes through, I don't know that it's going to change that much which players transfer uh, on the Power 5 level, but I do think that you're going to see a lot more Group of 5 and even FCS players transfer up. If I'm a, a freshman I have a standout freshman season at Toledo or Akron or whatever, and Ohio State's interested in me, and I don't have to sit out a year. That's a that's a no brainer. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see where the group of five conferences chime in on this. But I'll tell you what, it's the commissioner of the MAC, John Steinrecker, who is the chair of this committee that's endorsing this model. So if he's in favor of it, that tells me the MAC's in favor of it, and maybe other group of five conferences are are as well. All right, so changing gears from the transfer topic to uh, just an interesting story uh, from Chris Vanini, uh, our college football writer at The Athletic. Uh, St. Thomas, well, I'll let him explain it, but it's a pretty unusual situation about a school trying to jump from D3 to D1. Chris, thanks for coming on. Um, Tell us about the story you published on The Athletic on Thursday. Yeah, so last May... The Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, a a D3 conference, it's only in the state of Minnesota, announced that St. Thomas, uh, by far the the most successful athletic program in the conference, would be involuntarily removed from the league, Uh, basically because they were just dominating the conference too much. I, I wrote a story about it at the time. I talked to some people in the conference. And, you know, St. Thomas, they had won the, the all-sports conference trophy for 12 years in a row. The school had grown to be a lot bigger than everybody else in the conference. It, it, it's a conference of small private schools in Minnesota. And th- this school had gotten basically too big, too successful that most of, not everybody, but most of the schools in the conference basically wanted St. Thomas out. So they gave them two years 
to find a new place. And now St. Thomas is trying to be the first school ever to move from D3 to D1. And there's no real process for that. So they're working with the NCAA to figure out how that's going to work. And that's kind of what the story's about. When, when I first saw this, I mean, the, the, the biggest, um, you know, the biggest issue to me is D3, you don't offer scholarships. D1, FCS, you offer, uh, what, 73? Uh, FCS is 73 or 68 or right around there, something like that. Might be 63. Oof, we probably should check that before I came on. Anyway, the point is you go from spending $0 on scholarships to uh, hundreds of thousands. Where Where is a D3? How does a D3 school afford that? Yeah, that that's so Gene Taylor, who's the, the AD at Kansas State, he was the AD at North Dakota State when they moved from D2 to D1 in the mid-2000s. And he's been a informal consultant to kind of just help them with this process. And one of the things he keeps saying is, it's going to be a lot more money than you think it's going to be. Uh, St. Thomas has, I think, 20 sports teams. Um, Now, football will probably move to the Pioneer League, which is non-scholarship, so they would save some money there, although travel is going to increase greatly, which is a whole other issue. But basically, they're fundraising, uh, all sorts of stuff, staffing up, marketing, all kinds of different things that they have to find this money to be able to do that. Because their budget, athletic department budget, is around $5 million right now. It's probably going to have to at least double when you take into account travel, coaching salaries. you got to increase the staff. There basically isn't much of a compliance department there, and so they got to work all that kind of stuff out. So this is an enormous step, and it's why the NCAA had banned it in 2011, just because... It's a huge change. And so they're working with the Strategic Vision and Planning Committee to develop a process. It'll basically give them a five-year process to catch up to everything. But, yeah, it's, it's certainly a unprecedented jump. By the way, the scholarship limit in FCS is 63. I was off by 10. Um, but that makes more sense. Okay, so just straight from your story here, the, the Tommies went 8-2 and two in football last season. They are currently 21 and two in men's basketball and 18 and five in women's basketball. If this happened within the next couple years, I mean, can do you think they would be competitive two levels up? The coaches and people I talked to at the school think so. It may take some time. I mean, North Dakota State again, they moved up in in the mid 2000s and now have won eight of nine FCS national championships. So it, it, it can be done. Uh, the football coach told me that they recruit a lot of D1, D2 guys. Maybe they don't get as many, but they try to do stuff like that. Basketball, St. Thomas has been so successful that they are recruiting at a much higher level than a lot of their D3 counterparts. Um, and now they, for most of those sports, they'd be able to offer scholarships and stuff. And the school itself is, it's it fits, they've been invited by the Summit League and they're profile fits a lot of the summit league the, the enrollment is around six thousand. the endowments more than 500 million they got over a hundred thousand alumni they're going to be around a bunch of schools that are kind of similar in that mark so obviously i don't think they're going to be winning 35 straight indoor track and field championships like the men's team has but there's a lot of people involved that think that they will get there it's just going to take some time to catch up for everything you know what's interesting is 15, 20 years ago, when a school would move from from what was then 1AA to 1A, 
uh, you would see them really struggle for a long time. I'm thinking of Buffalo. I mean, they were awful. Several schools like that fit that fit that um, description. But now, like you said, I mean, North Dakota State moved from D2 to FCS. They win national championships. Appalachian State moves from FCS to FBS. And within a couple years, they're winning 11 games a year. Um, there have been a couple others like that recently. Like, it doesn't seem like these moves up are as daunting as they used to be. Yeah, and Boise State was the same way. Basically, if you're, the track record kind of shows if you're competing at a very, very high level where you're at, moving up a level, you'll generally still be pretty successful. However, we've never seen somebody make this jump. We've never seen anybody go D3 to D1, no scholarships to a lot more scholarships. And that's kind of the biggest question out of all of this is, is how that's going to uh, play out. But you're right. There have been a lot more successful cases in recent years. Georgia Southern was another one uh, as well, FCS to FBS. But that jump is not nearly as big as what St. Thomas is trying to do. Yeah, North Dakota State was in Division Two as recently as 2003. Um, they went 8-3 and three that last year. Then they moved – well, then they went through that transition period. But, again, 8-3, and 7-4, and 10-1, and 10-1. and one. Like, they didn't really miss a beat. Um, and then they were in the FCS playoffs by 2010. But this is completely... By the way, I meant to ask, if nobody's ever done it, why did they need, feel the need to ban it? Well, so the division split up in 1973, and it basically... It was something that they didn't want to deal with because the concern with St. Thomas doing this is that if they do it, there's a concern among other Division Three people that more schools will try to leave Division Three to go to Division One, and that's something some people don't want to happen, whether or not these people are involved. And that's kind of what the Strategic Vision and Planning Committee is trying to work out, is what are these requirements we're going to set uh, to allow a school to do this? And D3 to D1 is such a jump that there is no waiver process for this. There is no... They just don't have a process. There, there's a, a D3 to D2 process. It's like four or five years. There's a D2 to D1 that's like three years, I think. And then you, you have to be a D2 school for a minimum of five years in between that. So 12 years is kind of the minimum of where things currently stand. But St. Thomas doesn't have 12 years. They're getting kicked out of their conference now. They have to have a plan now. And the Summit League invited them when they were kicked out. The AD said, we don't really know where we're going to go. We can't really choose. It kind of depends on who invites us. And the Summit League is located in the upper Midwest. They saw what was going on and wanted to get in on and bring St. Thomas up. So they talked to St. Thomas. They extend the invitation. And that's why the D1 jump is happening because they have a home. North Dakota State actually didn't have a home when they moved up. And that was a whole stressful thing for a few years. So that's one reason Gene Taylor thinks St. Thomas is – Uh, in a good spot to do this because they have a place where they want to go. You have to have that invitation. That's where it starts. And St. Thomas has that. All right. So what's the, what's the timetable from here? You know, when, when, when are they expecting to know if they can do this? Well, the, the D one council meets in April. That's the big NCAA meeting where they make a lot of the rule changes that, that uh, become official. Uh, The strategic vision and planning committee is expected to present its final process reclassification process and the d1 council will vote on it from there everybody involved is optimistic that it's going to happen but it's not a guarantee for reasons that i 
already mentioned. So the idea was, hope, hopefully for St. Thomas, is they get the approval in April, and then throughout the summer of 2020, they really start figuring out all the details of where they're going to go for different things, if where they're going to go for hockey, where they're going to go for football, because the Summit League doesn't sponsor those sports. And then it would be probably, it looks like, a five-year reclassification process that would start, I imagine, in the spring of 2021 when they get kicked out. So it will be a five-year process from there, most likely. Uh, they will immediately move up to D1. They will be able to compete at the D1 level, but they won't be eligible for championships at that level uh, as part of the reclassification process. It's kind of like how Georgia Southern went 9-3 and three in their first year in FBS, and they weren't eligible for a, a bowl game. So... That's kind of the plan. Twenty twenty. If if it gets approved in April, spring twenty twenty one is when they're going to kind of start this. Well, before you go, I, I want to um, you know you are the co host of our Michigan State podcast. You went to Michigan State. Um, you've been pretty outspoken on Twitter about some of the events surrounding Mark D'Antonio's exit. Uh, we don't need to rehash all of it, but what's it been like um, for you and for other Michigan State fans to watch this all? transpire um you know dating i would say even going back to to last season and i mean the guy did so much for the program he took them to unprecedented heights but i mean i just feel like last season in particular maybe even went further back there was a lot of angst surrounding mark d'antonio among michigan state fans and i don't know it would be going too far to say they feel a little bit betrayed right now i don't think betrayed because they landed mel tucker I, i think if the coaching search had turned into a complete disaster then yeah, we, you know when, when Luke Fickle turned him down, a lot of people were freaking out. But I think the best way to kind of sum up where things have gone and kind of where, where things ended with Mark D'Antonio is, so he had that phrase, pride comes before the fall, he, that proverb. He said it after the 2007 loss to Michigan, became prophetic as, as MSU ended up dominating Michigan State for the next whatever years. But that pride and that stubbornness and that inability to change and adapt over the last handful of years really is what led partly led to the downfall of the program on the field not making coaching changes not really updating the offense uh, not changing recruiting tactics uh, as well and you kind of saw them fall off and that plays into where things are now even with this lawsuit that D'Antonio has going on a lot of people are very surprised that they haven't settled the lawsuit dirty laundry continues to come out uh, as this lawsuit goes on whether or not the staff or recruiting staffer is suing for wrongful termination will win or not. I don't know, but a lot of stuff's coming out at the end of this. That's really kind of changing. I think how people are going to think about where things went under Mark D'Antonio. He, he took them to heights. Nobody ever thought possible, but by the time he left in the shape that he left it in is not nearly what people thought it would be when he, whenever he was going to leave. So you said getting Mel Tucker was uh, a satisfying ending to this. Are you okay with them paying him? Uh, $5.5 million uh, after that, you know, basically one season as a head coach? I mean, it's not my money, so <laughs> not my, not my is it problem, a, I guess but, I would uh, say, is it uh, was it a smart investment, or was it kind of a desperation move? I mean, it's probably both. I, I think they couldn't afford to go much lower than that top tier of candidates they had. They had to pay big. They had to give them a, a contract that's 85% guaranteed. Um, I, I think a lot of the ties he has, he was one of the top guys they could get given the situation, and they got him. And Michigan State is now paying Michigan money. They're paying almost Ohio State money. They're paying Penn State money, something they didn't quite do under Mark D'Antonio. So now they're really trying to play with the big boys here. 
Uh, we'll see if it pays off. If it doesn't, it could be really, really problematic. But if it does, that's kind of what this whole thing's about. And 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 uh, if you win, you can't pay the guy enough, basically. There you go. I'm interested to see how it all plays out. Um, all right, Chris. You, Chris, by the way, came on on very, very, very short notice when I found out that Bruce wouldn't be able to join us this week. So uh, thanks for being flexible and thanks for coming on the Audible. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks to our guests today, Thomas Mars and Chris Vanini. Bruce will be back next week. We may even do this in person. We're both going to be in Indianapolis next week for the Combine and for some meetings of The Athletic. Um, and obviously wasn't able to do the mailbag this week, so we will get to your mailbag questions next week. As always, you can send those to the Audible Pod at gmail.com. See you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. The dumbest things cause the greatest thrills.